We're continuing our study in Exodus. We've made it to Exodus chapter 24, so you can make your way there, uh, where we will find, uh, really, the confirmation or the ratification, if you will, of the Mosaic Covenant. It's a covenant that is made between God Almighty through his special servant Moses to the nation of Israel regarding the law. And we'll see the ratification of that or the confirmation of that here in this chapter. It's prefaced or introduced to us in chapter 19, you may remember. Let me read it for you. Chapter 19, verse four. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Amen? That's God introducing this deal he's gonna cut with the nation of Israel. He says, hey, for my part, (laughs) I'm the deliverer. I put you on wings of eagles. I got you out of bondage. The whole earth is mine. I want to make you a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. I want to make you a treasured possession. That's my half of the bargain. Did you get what their half of the bargain was? To obey my voice and keep my covenant. It's a deal. This is my part. This is your part. And we always have to remember with covenants that God is always the initiator. He's always the term setter. He's the originator of the deal, okay? And God here sets up a deal with them. And then, as you know, if you look at covenants in the Bible, there's some that are unconditional. Abrahamic covenant. I don't know if you've ever studied that in Genesis chapter 12. There before there was any nations, right? They were just families. They were just people. God picked out one man. Remember Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis. He says, Abraham, move from this land. Go to another land. I'm going to guide you there. And and through you, I'm going to make a holy nation. I'm going to bless you, Abraham. In fact, I'm going to bless you so much. I'm going to bless the people who bless you, right? And I'm going to condemn those who dishonor you. What did Abraham do? It's just unconditional. Here's the deal. I'm going to do everything. (laughs) But this one isn't like that. This is a conditional covenant with God. It's dependent on the nation of Israel to follow the law. All of it. Yes, the Ten Commandments, the moral laws that we saw in chapter 20, but also the civil law that we've seen, how society is supposed to function, chapters 21 through 23, right? And then even the law that we're about ready to get in chapter 25 through the end of the chapter, just the ceremonial law. How are we supposed to practice this religion, right? The tabernacle, the priesthood, right? The order of service. How are we supposed to unwind this? There's a lot of rules, a lot of law in that. The whole thing in entirety, this covenant hinges on and is conditional on Israel obeying those and as I said, it's called the Mosaic Covenant. Moses is the steward. He's the, he's, the, he's the man of the house, and the rule of law is the law, per se. 
So let's take a look how that covenant between Israel and God through Moses is ratified or confirmed here in this chapter. Let's take a look at it. Chapter 24, verse one. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to God, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. So you have an invitation from God in the first two verses here. Come up here. Come up here. But God invites with some conditions, right? They're, they're all to, to come up, but some come up higher than the others, right? Sticking with the pattern there in chapter 3 when Moses first visits God on Mount Sinai, he alone goes up to meet with God. The others stay down here. Very stratified, right? You have Aaron and his two sons, Nadab and Abihu. That's really where the lineage of the priests are going to come from. And then you also have some elders that probably represent the 12 tribes of Israel. They're to come up, but they're to stay mid-mountain, if you will. Only Moses gets to go to the top. Very stratified. I find that intriguing because the next chapter, we're going to start talking about the tabernacle. There's a lot of divisions where God dwells and who can meet with him. I think he's setting up some of that. But the first thing that sticks up to, out to my, in my mind right here is someone's getting big leagued here, right? Only Moses gets to go meet with God. As a Christian, on this side of the cross, I'm like, wow. It's very partitioned. Moses is God's special representative. And we've seen that throughout this book. But I want to just strike a little contrast for you and I as a way of application here. Moses alone was made near to God. That's it. The rest of those poor slobs were down at the foot of the mountain. That's what they were doing, taking care of their kids and doing whatever they do, looking for a cow to melt down or something and worship something. They were down there. They had no access to God. And then there were some kind of important people. They got to go partway. Moses alone met with God. And boy, I can't read those two verses without thinking about this. As a Christian, as someone who's been saved by the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have been made near to God. All of us. We're all equal at the cross. Amen? I love that part of Christianity. There's no second-class citizen in Christendom. We're all the same. We've all been bought. It's all level. And I can't, I want to strike that contrast. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 13 says this. Those of us who once were afar from God, in Christ, through his blood, we've been made near to him. Amen? We once were afar. We were like those Israelites at the base of the mountain. Now, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, we can come boldly, right? Boldly to the throne of grace, right? Not stammering and stuttering, right? To receive mercy, get grace in our time of need. You have direct access to God Almighty as a Christian, amen? Not stratified. That's what I love about Christianity. 
None of us are more special than the other ones. We're all special to God equally, amen? Because he sees us through the lens of Jesus Christ the same, amen? We need to think about something. We need to push pause for a second. Those first two verses, it's an invitation to come to the top of the mountain. We're gonna pick it up again in verse nine, but there's a little, there's a little intermediate here, and it's the next six verses or so. It's verses three through eight. And it's really just Israel confirming or ratifying, agreeing to this covenant with God, and then we'll get back to the mountain, okay? So let's look at verse three. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words of the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord He rose up early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and he put it in the basin and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they all said again, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, and he threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So there you go. Israel agrees, confirms. We agree. Moses starts out in verse three and says, I'm gonna read you all the words of the Lord, all the rules, not just chapter 20, the 10 commandments, but all the rules, the civil law, right? How we're to treat each other in society, right? Chapters 21 through 23, all of that. I'm gonna give you all of that information and they said, we'll do it. Sounds, sounds good, right? We'll do it. In verse seven, he said the same thing. He read, then he read it formally to him, the book, and they said the same thing. We'll do it all. We'll do it all. That stood out to me because we know they're not gonna do it all, are they? We'll do it all. Maybe, maybe talk can be cheap sometimes, Right? Anything worth anything is worth writing down, right? Any franchise, any agreement, any contract that's worth anything, you're going to put down on paper. Verbal agreements are one thing. Moses says, listen, I appreciate your attitude, and I do also. I like when people say, yeah, I'll do that. But I've learned in my years that talk can be cheap. And so the first thing they want to do, Moses says, I'm going to write this down. I'm going to write what you're agreeing to on something so we can refer to it later. So your imagination doesn't get the better of you. You ever make a verbal agreement with somebody? And the terms change. Oh, I didn't say that. I didn't agree to that. Right? Anybody have kids here? Yeah. You understand what I'm saying then, right? Talk can be cheap. Anything worth agreeing to 
of any significance needs to be written down. Moses knows that. I'm going to write this down. We can refer to it later. Right? You ever study successful people? They set goals. And you know what they do with those goals? They write them down. So they can go back and refer to them when they get a little weak. Right? Oh, I don't, I, well, it's so easy when you just use your tongue, but when it's a piece of paper you can look at, it's a little different. My youngest son just graduated high school, and so we were uh, having a little graduation party with masks on, of course, but not really, but. (laughs) So we made a little album for him so people could look at the pictures, and my wife and I were looking through it. Oh, look when he was young, And at the back of this book, tucked in behind it, was a piece of paper I remember Gabe writing. And it said, it was his goals when he started wrestling in grade seven. It said, I said, you should set some goals. What do you want out of this? We can just have some fun or we can win the Olympics. Whatever you want to do, that's good with me. So he, I said, make some goals and write them down. You know, first one, I want to be mentally tough. Oh, that's a good, I like that one. That's a good thing to get from wrestling. Slash stupid, but mentally tough, I'll, I'll stay. <laughs> it's a fine line. Two, he wanted to win middle school state. And then number three, he wanted a place at the Reno Worlds. And I said, okay, put that up on that board right there as we walk out every day in the mudroom. And he looked at that. And you know, I used that a lot because when it got closer to competition and he didn't want to lose his weight, or when he didn't want the extra run or the extra workout, I said, hey, <laughs> look, look, you said you wanted to do this. It's ri- you wrote that. You wrote it down. Because we have imagination with the things that we say. When it's written down, it's great. Can I make a suggestion for all of us? We should write more things down. My favorite people in the world journal. I'm not one of them. I want to be better at that. It's very, very healthy to write things down. You can go back and look where you're at. Important things in your life are worth writing down. There's a power in what you say, no doubt. I think it's very important what we write down and choose to remember accurately. We make a record of it. Probably, I think the happiest my wife has ever been with me I saw a look in her eye that I haven't seen very rarely to me. (laughs) And it was when her father passed away. Suddenly, no one got to say goodbye. He was one second here, the next second with the Lord. It was a great way to die, bad way to say goodbye. So when we rushed down to Fresno to make arrangements and all of that, of course, when she got down there, she looked, her and her mom were going through all of his stuff. Right? And on his nightstand, a place that he looked at a lot was a note. And my wife came out and showed it to me. And it was awesome. It said, Sergio, thank you for helping with that project on my house. But more than that, thank you for loving us, for loving Stephanie and me and the boys, Dan. It was a note I wrote on the back of a paper plate because I was late to work. I didn't think it was worth anything. He kept that thing for years, and it was folded up 
And my wife's like, look at that. I felt so proud of myself. That was as proud as I've ever been of myself, ever. I was just like, oh, what a blessing. Just those little things. It's so powerful. Send a note. Remember Russ Heater? Everybody here's probably got a note from Russ Heater, right? Everybody? I told somebody when, when Russ passed away, I said, man, that guy's so special. Uh, he sent me a litter, and they're like, oh, I got one too. <laughs> Everybody's got, he was the master at this, wasn't he? God bless him in the written word. Something that's important we want to put down. Moses said, listen, talk, talk can be cheap. There's going to be a time when you fail, and I want to point you to something important, these rules that you're so easily and so eagerly saying, yes, yes, yes. In four verses, they said it twice. So he wrote it down. It's the first thing he did. Do you notice the second thing he did to ratify this? Check it out. In verse five, he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. He wrote down something, but anything worth confirming or ratifying in God's economy takes sacrifice. God's covenants are always in the context of sacrifice. Did you know that? It's a message that's not popular right now, but everything costs something. Everything. The question is, who's going to pay for it? And that's what sacrifice does. It admits that we aren't paying for it, that someone else is paying for it when we blow it. That's what they're doing. They're saying, when I fall short, when I fail, when I sin, it's going to cost something or somebody something. And praise God, it's not me. And so they killed an animal. It speaks that I need a substitute to pay my way. That's what sacrifice does. It's admitting that. And I know it's not super popular now, but I would recommend everybody watching an animal die every once in a while. It might change your mind on eating meat and respecting farmers and ranchers. Everything's so clean and crisp right now, right? You can go to the, the butcher and it's all just looking great. These guys cut an oxen in half with probably stones. I don't know, imagine that. That was probably pretty gory. And the older I get, the less I like to see things die. I don't even like to hunt anymore. I know I'm a wussy, sorry guys. I don't like watching, I just don't. We were killing a couple steers a couple years ago. I'm like, the guy's like, hey, you gotta stay here and show me which ones. I'm like, God, you really don't want to. I didn't like what I saw, <laughs> to be honest with you. But I like hamburger, and so there's nothing wrong with it. I just don't want to be a part of it, right? I want to be. Sacrifice speaks of a need for someone else to pay your debt, a substitutionary death. Amen? God addresses this through sacrifice and the blood. That's the other thing they did. They applied the blood of this sacrifice. Verse six, and Moses took half the blood and put it in the basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Gory. He bloodlet this thing, right? He took half of it to use later. He took half of it and he sprinkled it against the altar. They were applying blood. 
was a sign to the people that they were the recipients of life. See, the ancients understood that blood equaled life. Read Leviticus. They didn't have everything figured out, but they were crazy smart. There's only so much of that stuff you have in you. And when it leaves you, you die. Right? It spoke of life. And when they took that blood, they realized you are going to be the recipient of life in this deal. And when he took it and threw it against the altar, Moses is saying that God Almighty, that one, that half of the two parties in this agreement, that one right there is the covenant keeper. He is the promise maker. He is the way maker. That guy, when you fall, that blood, he's going to give you that life. Amen? It's God. It spoke of forgiveness and acceptance. After all, there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9, correct? The blood had to come. Speaks of life. There's no forgiveness without it. It's a really a gory visual display of atoning death. That's what they were doing. They were they wanted these Israelites to grind that into them. It's a vivid reminder to help the Israelites see the source and the character and the nature of the forgiveness and the acceptance that they got by being in a covenant relationship with them. Right? It's a reminder of God and his grace is what it did. God was gracious by allowing an animal sacrifice and that blood to give them life. It's always based on the ultimate sacrifice, though, right? The perfect sacrifice of Christ to which all Old Testament is based on and points towards. It's upon which all Old Testament sacrifice, all of them, depend on for their ultimate validity. It was there. Oh, they didn't know about it yet. But there's a, a rhyme to all this. There's a rhythm to it. Christ is going to be the ultimate sacrifice one day. And the more that you see the sacrifice, the need, right? The need for a substitute death, the blood, the need for forgiveness, acceptance, atoning for you. The more they see that, they'll see that someday there is going to be a perfect one. The God-man, Jesus Christ who shed his blood in the same manner so that you could have life. Amen? He sprinkled it on the people after that, on the altar, and then verse 8, after he read it to them, he said, okay, you going to agree again? And he threw it on them to seal the deal. I like these words, the last words of this section. Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, in accordance to all these words. Basically, he's saying this blood sealing the deal. It's all summed up in this. That blood was shed and sprinkled on the altar and sprinkled on you. Amen? This section here, as a way of application, for me, when I read this, that's just me. It's what stood out to me. I guess I have the prerogative to tell you how I feel about this section. To me, what stood out was, we'll do everything. We'll do everything so quickly. Such a great attitude. 
if I didn't know this people like I do now. (laughs) It speaks, this is what struck me. This is what arrested me. We will do everything you say. We will do it all. We will obey. It speaks to me of self-effort, an outward work, human effort, human resource. We can do this. Really? It's because divinity was on the outside of them. That's all they could do. We're going to do all this. That's not the way that we should live on this side of the cross. Amen? Authentic Christianity is nothing of this. It knows nothing of a self-life. There's nothing more misdirected than a self-directed Christian life. This is not a religion. This, what this is, is letting someone else live a life through you. You see, we have the indwelling. We have deity inside. And when he's inside, he's free to live a life through you that isn't a bootstrap religion. This isn't, I can do it. I'm very weary when people say, I can do this. No, you can't. I can stop that addiction. No, you can't. See, we get somewhere when we say, I never could and never will. He always does and always will. Amen? That's how it works with Christian. And and this is what, this contrast, flipping back and forth. We have deity inside, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, right? It's, right? God who is inside of me who wills and does for his good pleasure, right? It's the indwelling of deity. His spirit producing a life that we never could produce on our own. It's filling up our deficiencies. All of this should be manifest outwardly, of course. As ministers of the new covenant, right? 2 Corinthians chapter chapter 3, we're ministers of that. We should be unveiled, right? And it should glow out, glory to greater glory. The inside coming outside, of course. But we should be weary about we will do all. We will do all. No, he will do all through us. Amen? That's what that section I thought applied and I thought maybe be worth mentioning to you. The last section here. We're going to be done early tonight. Anybody unhappy about that? All right, good, that's what I thought. Verses nine through 18, I'm just gonna read this last section, make a few points, and try to make an application, okay? Here it is, verse nine. This is, now we're picking back up from verse one and two, the invitation up to the mountain, okay? Now they're gonna start heading up there, here we go. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw God, they saw the God of Israel, There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hands on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate, and they drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose up with his assistant Joshua, And Moses went up into the mountain, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return for you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let them go to them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. 
the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And then Moses entered the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So Moses went up there to get the tablets. He went up there to get the tablets, and he's going to stay up there a while also to get some instructions directly from God Almighty about the ceremonial law. And we'll see that in the chapters to come. So at this point, we have the nation of Israel at the base of the mountain. <laughs> we have Aaron and his sons and the 70 elders halfway up. And now we have Moses and Joshua a little higher up, waiting on the Lord for six days. And then we're going to have on the seventh day, Moses going up on top all by his lonesome to get his instruction and his revelation from God. That's what we have right now. I want to point out a few things in verse 10 here. It's said here that all of them, midway in the mountain, saw the God of Israel. Now, when I read that, I thought to myself, I, don't, I thought that no one could see God and live. I believe that to be true. In, verse th in chapter 33, verse 20, it says, don't look at me in, in fullness, Moses. No one can look at me in whole. You can't see me and live. It's like the human, the human eyes in our perception cannot contain God. If it could, it would devour us. I believe that to be true. So what actually did they see? I don't know. Maybe they saw a form. To me, I know one thing they did see for sure. It says they saw his footstool, right? They saw the bottom of his feet and what he was sitting on is what they saw there. Doesn't it say the footstool was the emphasis here? No mortal man can take the whole splendor of God in. But when you look at it, it says there was under his feet, as it were, pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven of clearness. So his feet look like the sky. It makes sense, right? He's in heaven. <laughs> it's crystal clear. It sounds beautiful to me. It's almost like the emphasis is they saw God and they didn't die. It's like they almost didn't dare to look higher when they saw that. That's kind of how I see it. I know one thing is that you have to harmonize other scripture, and so that's how I view it. They saw God. They didn't die. I think they got a glimpse of God, kind of like Isaiah and Ezekiel. They didn't get the full view because they lived. Amen? They also ate and drank. Did you notice that? They went up there, and they ate and drank. They shared a meal. They would, What do we uh, call this now in... They like broke bread, right? That's what we mean when we, okay, we struck a deal. It's a, it, to me, it's really a sign. It's a special ceremony, right? It speaks of mutual cooperation, of agreement, of respect. Eat together. All right. These are the terms. I agree to them. Let's, let's consummate this with, with, with a meal, right? That we, we it'll, it'll seal the deal. They ate and they drank together. Verse 13, I also want to make a note of Joshua. It said, Moses took Joshua. 
This is the same Joshua, the great leader, remember, who led him into the promised land? That Joshua. This is a little assistant Joshua. We saw him first in chapter 17. Remember when he helped in battle? And now we see him as Moses' assistant, his right-hand man, learning spiritual things. He got up way up on the mountain. Besides Moses, he was way up there. I really appreciate that. He had an assistant named Joshua who wasn't the great Joshua. It reminds me, you got to start somewhere, huh? Joshua was a special man, but he was someone's assistant at one time. Something worth thinking about. All you people in positions of power, do you have an assistant that you're helping? Learn physical things, like in battle, like, like, and also but spiritual things? And all you prideful young people, would you put yourself under somebody? Would you? This generation sometimes is disappointing to me because I'm getting old and grumpy. Get off my lawn. <laughs> would you put yourself under somebody? Quit yelling at your parents that they're not enlightened enough and look at them. The families I love watching is I love watching their kids. They look up to their parents. They did something right. And I think it speaks here that everybody should be somebody's assistant at one time, right? One of my favorite things about my, one of my partners at my office, Dr. Walters, Scott Walters, great guy. You know what he used to do for a living? He worked for Denny's. Nothing speaks doctor like Denny's, right? <laughs> he loved working at, he, he's a servant. He's a great man. I always remember that. He started somewhere and he worked hard. And he was not prideful. He worked hard. There are a lot of jobs out there. Nothing to be ashamed of. You work hard, you move up the ladder if you can. I like that. Dr. Walters, the servant at Denny's, now serving people's eyes, right? It's one of my favorite people. I love it. All right, I used to be a hod carrier too, by the way. I was pretty low on the totem pole as well. That wasn't my calling, I think. I was better at that than I doctoring, though, so... Assistant Joshua, I love that part. A couple other points here. God's glory dwelt on the mountain. It always had, even from the beginning, right? That cloud. But here it says his full Shekinah glory dwelt on that mountain. And I love the way they explained it. They say it was like devouring fire. It sounds scary to me. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai in a cloud, and then the appearance of glory was like the firing, devouring fire on the top of the mountain. Moses entered that, by the way. The fury of God, the awesome splendor of his glory, he entered right into. And he didn't just stay there for a few days, 40 days and 40 nights. He entered in the cloud and went up there. It was a prolonged stay. In fact, as a matter of perspective, we don't see Moses again till chapter 32 when he comes down remember and sees the golden calf shenanigans down there that's when we see him next chapter 25 through 31 he's up there he's up there learning about how to build the tabernacle how the priests are supposed to administer this law the whole ceremonial law he's learning with God is that awesome 
He's a special person. He's hooked up with God 40 days and 40 nights, learning how to be the steward of this law, how to be the boss man of this house of Israel, and how to negotiate between the people and him the law, how to execute that. So he's up there a long time. Now listen, this section here is a matter to close and just with a little bit of application. Moses, in this section, what stuck out to me, Moses was the man. He's a special person. He got to go to the top of the mountain and fellowship with God and learn directly from God a revelation that he didn't know before and no people knew before. Up there on the top of the mountain in that fiery fury glory, splendor. He was up there with God alone. Joshua didn't get to go. No one else got to go. He was the man. He was the steward of the law. He was in charge of dispensing it to the people. You know who really is the man, (laughs) the God man? That's Jesus Christ. Listen, he (laughs) ushered in another type of thing. I want you to look at John chapter one. When Jesus Christ comes on the scene, he ushered in something a little different than what Moses was. I want you to just see a connection here. John chapter one, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's interesting that word dwelt. It just means tabernacled. Making a connection maybe? And the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Here's our connection. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now listen to me. It's not that grace and truth never existed before. But it wasn't the household rule before. Right? The law was what Moses was needing to pound in so they could see different grace, that they could see Christ. It was a pattern that he was pounding in. It was always there. It was always there for them to see. But Jesus brought in something different so that the baton could be handed to another person. God handed Moses the law I think Jesus Christ handed Paul the stewardship of grace. And I love the connection here because to me, it speaks of a very parallel kind of situation here. The grace and truth always existed. It just, it just wasn't the way of life. It was law that was the way in life there. I, I'm convinced that the apostle Paul was taken by Jesus Christ himself, right? Out in the desert. You see this in Galatians chapter three. It was his calling. Let me read it for you. Ephesians chapter three, verse one. It's a great verse on this. Paul called by God, for I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel that I preached by me is not man's gospels. I did not receive it from any man. Just like Moses didn't receive anything from man. He just received it from God. Nor was I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. He was taught directly. If you read on, it talks about him being out in the desert, being taught graphically, I believe in a vision 
something deeper. Grace revelation, how to live a lifestyle in grace that generations before knew nothing of. It was always there, but it wasn't their way of life. You see? I want you to check out another verse. It's in Galatians chapter 1. It just pounds this point home. Oh, that was Galatians. This is Ephesians chapter 3, sorry. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, on your behalf of your Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace. That's where I got that. Paul's the steward of grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. I love this part, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to, to his holy apostles and prophets through the Spirit. Is all I'm, I'm trying to set up here is, is I think there's a parallel between Moses and God, law, <laughs> Jesus Christ, <laughs> right? Paul, lifestyle of grace. That's all I want to set up here. And I think it's worth thinking about. It's kind of a cool little parallel. Grace and truth has always existed, but it wasn't the way of life. It's what I think the law was set up for so that the baton could be handed and you could actually see that and appreciate it. See revelation kind of progressively coming on the scene. So there you have it's the covenant of the law, Mosaic covenant being ratified between God and Israel. Um, I pray that you would read it on your own and see what God shows it to you, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're grateful for your people, and we're so thankful that we get to be together tonight. I just so, I am. I just, I'm thankful for the, your people, your body. I pray that we would be encouraging one to another, um, that today would be a blessing that you would see us getting along and loving one another. So be with us in your son's name. Jesus, amen.